Okay, good evening, everybody. Let's take a moment and cultivate our motivation. So we have this I that arises in dependence upon the body and mind, but not being satisfied with just the thought I. We make the eye into some very big, important thing. Something real and solid. Something that's truly there. Something that's the center of the universe. That's the most important thing. and that everyone else should stop and respect and please. So we have this incredible self-centeredness that makes the I more important than it is, that inflates the I. And then through this self-grasping at a truly existent eye and this self-centeredness, we plunge through life with the mantra, I want what I want when I want it. And then not getting what we want when we want it. We again make a big deal out of the eye and get mad at the world because we feel entitled to have what we want. Or we turn in on ourselves and get mad at ourselves, telling ourselves we're unworthy and inadequate. Both of those ways of dealing with the frustration of not getting what we want are also inflations of the important of the importance of the eye, making the eye more important than it is. Creating stories that we project on ourselves. And so we keep going through life completely fenced in by the idea of I, everywhere we turn, we bump into ourselves so that we're completely entrapped by the concept of I. And then we wonder why we're not happy. So we have to really identify the the true quote-quote enemy, which is the grasping at this true I and its cohort, the one that says the I is the most important thing in the universe. And so seeing the disadvantages of those two types of thought seeing that neither of them is an accurate description of what actually is, then we oppose them, we counteract them, we stop believing in the I and the importance of the I. And that gives us so much space to really care for others really contribute to the well-being of others and to have genuine freedom, not bumping into ourselves everywhere we go. And so let's make that our aspiration to attain that fully liberated state free from the self-grasping, free from the self-centeredness, to become fully enlightened Buddhas. 
and in that way really be able to love others and have genuine compassion for them and work for their benefit. So take a moment and generate that motivation. what I just described very, very clearly, you know, that we have this idea, well, we give the, we have the label I, you know, that arises in dependence upon the body and mind, and it's kind of a shortcut instead of saying that body and mind are doing this and that, you know, we say that person is doing this or that, or I'm doing this or that, but not being satisfied with the I being something that's merely labeled, we solidify it, make it quite real. So then there's this real I. And of course, this real I wants things, wants happiness. So we have I want, and I like, and I need, and I don't want, and I don't like, and I don't need. And I want this now. I'm entitled to this now. I don't like that. Get it away from me. And so all day long, we're going through life just uh, reacting to the things and people around us through this whole veil of me, I, my, and mine, relating to everything through this little bitty periscope that comes up that's called me. And all we can see is this little bit through the periscope. You know, because we interpret everything in terms of ourselves. And yet there's this whole big universe out there. And we can't relate to any of it. You know, except to this little pinhole of me. So it's really very, very confining. And every time we try and have some freedom or some space, it's like we're completely surrounded. It's, It's like being in the middle of this pipe, and the pipe is me. You know, it's my ideas of myself. And everywhere I go, I try and go left or right or front or back. And all I'm doing is bumping into my ideals, my ideas of myself and not being able to get beyond them and so feeling incredibly trapped. Are you getting what I mean? Do you feel this way sometimes? Yeah? Like, gee, I would really like just to open my heart towards people, but, you know, instead I have all this judgment, why do they do this, and why don't they do that, and how come they should do this, and not that, and they don't treat me right, and they don't think well enough of me, and they criticize me behind my back, and how come they're doing this, and they should be different, and I need them to be different, and they don't listen to me, and... It's exhausting, isn't it? You know, the chatter that goes on in our mind. You know, so much judgment of other people because they just aren't conforming to what our thought of me thinks they should be. You know, we want them all to relate to us in a certain particular way. Yeah. And so then, you know, they don't treat me well enough or they treat me too good because I'm unworthy. Yeah, I'm bad. I'm unworthy. They treat me too good. They must be an idiot. 
Or, I'm so wonderful, I'm so great, how can they treat me so lousy? Nobody loves me. Yeah, because I'm... Yeah, nobody loves me because they're so stupid, they don't realize how wonderful I am. That's today, then tomorrow, they don't love me because actually I'm inadequate and I'm so stupid. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, wherever we turn... There's all this stuff about me, you know, and we keep bashing our head into it. And it's really painful, and it's very, very frustrating. And it's all based on hallucination. Yeah, it's total, 100% hallucination. Drug-free hallucination. Yeah. Like Lama Yeshe used to tell us, you don't need to take drugs, dear. You're already hallucinating. (laughs) Yeah? And we are. We hallucinate this self and then, you know, imprison ourselves by it. And it's all made up. Because when we look, when we examine who is this I that we think we are, it becomes very difficult to actually pinpoint something that we are. And yet there's this feeling inside of, I am! And we can give a a lot of things, you know. I'm this race, I'm this nationality, I'm this gender, I'm this socioeconomic class, I'm this sexual orientation, I'm this um, educational level, I, I like these things, I don't like that things. You know, on and on and on. We have all these identities. But it's all based on a hallucination of a big me. And then making this me so important. Yeah? So from the morning till the night, always looking out on what's going to bring me happiness. All the time. Every little thing. I don't feel like getting up to meditate now. I'll feel like getting up to meditate in five minutes. Don't bug me. You know? That's what we're like, isn't it? I feel like putting this potato and this carrot together on my fork and eating it to get the most bliss. And I don't feel like eating that food. Yeah. I mean, everything is put in the perspective of me, isn't it? Yeah. And so we can't relax around anything because we're always looking at everything in terms and filtering it through how it can it give me pleasure and how is it a potential harm and threat. It's always time to grab something and protect ourselves. And it's exhausting. I mean, no wonder we need to go to sleep at night. No, seriously, it's exhausting, isn't it? Yeah, trying to get what we want and protect this self is totally exhausting. Especially when the self doesn't exist the way we think it exists. When what we're trying to protect is something that's not real. Hmm? So we have to really work to oppose those two things you know one is the self-centeredness that is just you know I'm the most important one and the world revolves around me yeah and I want what I want when I want it and I deserve that I'm entitled to it why? because I'm the center of the universe why am I the center of the universe? because I'm me yeah So I'm entitled to everything, and everybody else should wait on me hand and foot. And if they don't, I'm going to let them know. (laughs) True? Not true. Yeah? So, uh, you know, instead of blaming other people for not being what we want them to be, if we look at this self-centered mind and try and subdue it gradually, gradually, little by little, you know, calling it when it does its trip instead of following after it when it's doing its trip. Calling it and saying, 
you know, call ourselves on our stuff. Yeah, talk to your self-centered mind and say, who do you think you are? You know that question your mom used to ask you all the time? <laughs> My mom always did. Now, who do you think you are? It was actually a very profound question. <laughs> yeah? Really? It's a very profound question. Who do you think you are, young lady? I'm me! <laughs> yeah. That's the way we felt. Yeah. But examine that. Who is that me? And why should that be me be the most important thing in the universe? You know? All those times, I used to hate when I got disciplined because it was never my fault. <laughs> you know, every time I got in trouble, it was always unfair. I never did anything wrong. The problem was the world didn't cooperate with me. But for me, I never did anything wrong, and I couldn't figure out why I would ever get in trouble. It was terribly unfair when I got in trouble. Even now, even now if people criticize me, they're criticizing me for something I didn't do. It's not fair. It's not my problem. It's their problem. See, Buddhism even says so. What they're blaming me for is just a protect projection of their own mind. <laughs> yeah. So we get so stuck in this self-centeredness and it makes us really, really unhappy. Yeah, so to notice it and then slowly try and apply the antidotes to it. Okay? You can't go in there with a sledgehammer and say, I'm going to get rid of my self-centeredness. Wham! You know? Because the I that's getting rid of your self-centeredness is also a big, fat, important I, isn't it? Yeah. So you have to be, you know, just as the I is very sneaky, we also have to be very sneaky. Yeah. Really go in there and, who do you think you are? Why should everybody do this? Is that really going to make you happy? You know, we have to pose questions to ourselves. But we have to do it, you know, in this way so that we can really see the falsity in the self-centered thought and the self-grasping ignorance. Like I said, we can't go in there with a sledgehammer because that doesn't work. You getting what I mean? Yeah. Because if you sit there and go, I'm so selfish. Yeah. I have the worst self-centered attitude than anybody else. I'm just so selfish all the time and my selfishness makes me miserable. So I'm going to clobber my selfishness. I hate myself for being selfish. Is that going to work? That is not going to work. Because that's just, again, making a big deal out of ourselves, aren't, aren't we? Okay, so we have to go in and do it very skillfully. But really with a lot of wisdom that can see very clearly how we're hallucinating our importance and the I we think that is so important. Okay? So let's warm up. Now, I'm wondering if you figured out that there was a car in the parking lot? <laughs> yeah? Have you been contemplating that the whole week? <laughs> you know what Lama Zopa used to say? He would say, there's a car on the driveway, but there's no car on the car parts. There's a car on the driveway, but there's no car on the parts of the car. Okay, what does he mean? What does he mean? Conventionally, there is a car in the parking lot, but ultimately there is no car because it's only labeled. Okay. Okay. 
So when he that you know when he says there's a car in the parking lot, he's talking on the conventional level. Okay, when he's saying that there's no car on the car parts, then ultimately, you know, when you examine that basis, you can't find anything that is a car. Okay, how does the car exist? Conventionally, by being merely labeled. Okay, so that's an interesting, it's a short phrase, but it's an interesting one to pray, to um, to play with, you know. There's a cat over there, but there's no cat on the cat's body. Yeah, what do you think? There's a cat over there, but there's no cat on the cat's body. Yeah? So can we put those two together in our mind? I'm sitting on this chair, but there's no me on my body, in my body. But I'm sitting on this chair, but there's no me in the body. Sounds weird, doesn't it? Make you feel slightly uncomfortable? It should. It should. Yeah? (laughs) Relieved? Yeah. So sometimes these short phrases are, are very, uh, very good to kind of keep in mind as you're going through the day and look at everything like that. Yeah. There's a telephone on the table, but there's no, no telephone in the space. But there's a telephone on the table. There's the telephone. Here's the telephone, right? But there's no telephone in there. But here's the telephone. You look puzzled. Is there a telephone? No, it's just so hard to put them together. Yeah. It's, it's so strange. Yeah. That's why the one verse in Lama Chopa talks about, you know, may we see, may we penetrate Nagarjuna's view to yeah. see mm-hmm. that the two truths are mutually complementary and not contradictory. How does that work with Guy Newman talking about radio station A and B? Okay, so when Guy's talking about radio station A and B, okay, radio station A, let's say, is the conventional way things exist. Radio station B is the way things ultimately exist. You can have one, as, as ordinary beings, we can only play one radio station at a time. We can't, yeah, we can't play both of them. As a Buddha, you can play both at the same time. And both exist at the same time. But as ordinary beings, we can only play one and not the other. But they do come to the same point, but we cannot perceive that. Right. And so when you said that about the cat, and I looked at her, it was so There's a cat there, but there's no cat in that body. And there's a telephone here, but there's no telephone in there. Yeah. But can, they come together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing to say there's a telephone there, but there's no telephone in there. That they, those two statements are not contradictory. They have, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Those two statements depend on each other. Because you can't have the conventional object without having its emptiness, and you can't have its emptiness without having the conventional object. They depend on each other. Yeah. But you can Right. It's like coming at them from very different directions. Because you look at, oh, there's a telephone. There's no telephone there. (laughs) What do you mean there's no telephone there? What are you talking on? Yeah, you're talking on a telephone. Where's the telephone you're talking? You know, through channel B, you can't find a telephone you're talking on. Through channel A, the telephone's right there. Didn't he also say that on channel A, you start hearing some advertisements about channel B? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Understanding conceptually, intellectually, channel B. Yes. 
trailers or something. Yeah, right. Yeah, because you can only get to channel B through channel A. You can't go directly to channel B. Yeah, because we have to learn about emptiness. And how do we learn about emptiness? We have to use words and concepts. Then we have to reflect on their meaning. Then we have to meditate on their meaning. You know, if we didn't have to use words and concepts, if we didn't have to learn about emptiness in order to perceive emptiness, then we already would have realized it, right? Close your eyes, there's nothing. You know, there's emptiness. Go to sleep, emptiness. Yeah. It's not like that. Okay, let's go back to the quiz. Let's finish the quiz today at least, okay? Okay, so we were on question eight. Give three reasons why pleasure and pain are not real. Okay. Uh, well, I guess they were truly existent. So they're not truly existent because they depend on causes. Okay, so pleasure and pain depend on causes. For example, uh, what's a cause of pleasure? What's a cause of pain? A nail in your foot is the cause of pain. Okay, a nail in your foot is the cause of pain. What else is the cause of pain? The feeling that comes up from that. No, that is the feeling. Pain is the feeling. Yeah, so what else is the cause of pain? Having the body there, having the receptors there, having the mind there that can perceive this, having the nail there, having, uh, you know, being... uh, Not drugged out so much that you can't, you know, not sedated. Okay, so being not being sedated, having a body, being born in a body, is a cause of experiencing the pain of the nail in your foot. What else is a cause of the pain? What? Your past negative actions. Your past negative actions. Oh, duh. <laughs> we forgot about that, didn't we? Our past harmful actions. Yeah, our own karma. Okay, so so the fact that pleasure and pain arise in dependence on causes, some of those causes being external objects, some of them being our having a body and under the influence of karma and afflictions, some of them being our previous actions. Okay? So then what's another cause of pleasure and pain? Or what, uh, what's another reason that pleasure and pain aren't truly existent? Mm-hmm. Because they are labeled in relation to each other. Okay. They're labeled in relationship to each other. What does that mean? So that means if you were in uh, a hell realm, then something that we would think of here as extremely painful would be quite a pleasure. Mm-hmm. Possibly. Okay, so if we were born for a hell realm being, experiencing what we label pain would be labeled pleasure from their their viewpoint. Yeah. So pleasure and pain are dependent on each other, okay, and merely labeled. Why else are they not truly existent? Mm-hmm. Because if they were truly existent, pleasure would never be overpowered by pain. I mean, it would be a permanent state of existence of the mind. You couldn't move into any other state of existence but in a pleasurable state. Mm-hmm. And for the pain, same thing. If there's no way to move out of pain if it were truly existent because it would have no cause to be other than that. Yeah. Okay. So if, if pleasure and pain were truly existent, they would be static and permanent and could never change into anything else because they wouldn't depend on causes. Okay. And then also because the contact, which is one of the causes of feelings, is also not truly existent. Okay. So an impermanent phenomena is, couldn't cause a permanent couldn't be contacted with an impermanent phenomenon. Feelings could not be the result of an impermanent 
phenomena if, it's per, if they were truly existent, if the feelings were truly existent? Well, just even, can, can a permanent phenomena produce anything at all? No. No. Because no. it doesn't change. So whether it's truly existent or not, it can produce. But, but contact is an impermanent phenomena. If it were truly existent, it would have to be permanent, then it couldn't produce anything. Okay. Yeah. So these are things to think about when you have pleasure and pain. Yeah, usually that's not what we think about when we have pleasure and pain. Yeah, when it hurts, it feels like it really hurts from its own side, independent of everything else. And when it's pleasurable, it feels like it's pleasurable from its own side. Yeah, independent of everything else. And it feels like the pleasure's coming from the object and the pain's coming from the object. You know, but they aren't. Yeah? Hmm? They feel permanent. Yeah, they yeah. When you're in the experience. Yep. When you're in the experience, our mind holds the experience as permanent. Okay. You know, intellectually, you know it isn't. It doesn't feel that way. Yeah, yeah. That's because we have also the wrong grasping that grasps the impermanent phenomena as permanent. That's one of the four distorted conceptions we have. So it's, it comes especially in terms of pain and pleasure. When it's painful, we feel like the pain is always there. It's never going to change. It's never going to go away. It wasn't caused by causes. It just came out of the blue, and it's always going to be there. And we react to it that way, don't we? And we fight it, and we're miserable. And the same thing with pleasure. You know, when there's pleasure, it came out of the blue. I want more of it. And... Again, it doesn't feel like it's dependent. You know, when we experience pleasure, we don't say to ourselves, oh, this is a result of my constructive karma. We say, this is a result of this object. It's giving me pleasure. Hmm? So, in, in, in medicine, we hear of chronic pain. Uh-huh. We never hear of chronic pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> so, we, we always hear of chronic blame, pain, but we never hear of chronic pleasure. Okay. Well, there's a few reasons. First of all, because whenever we have pleasure or even neutral feeling, we don't appreciate it. We're always uh, geared to notice the painful feeling. Okay. We take the pleasurable feeling, we take for granted, we feel like we deserve it. That's our self-centered thought. I deserve pleasure. So pleasure is not a big deal. I deserve it. I'm entitled to it. I should get it. Pain, on the other hand, is unfair and somebody else's fault. Okay? So we react to pain quite differently than we, than we do to pleasure. Also, we have a body that is ripe for pain. Our body is not ripe for pleasure. Yeah, Our body is not a vehicle that is sitting there just waiting to experience pleasure. You have to really work at experiencing pleasure. You have to go to a lot of effort to experience pleasure with your body, don't you? It doesn't just come. You have to sit it on something that's comfortable. You have to put it where it's the right temperature. You have to feed it. You have to, you know, do all these things just even sometimes to get a neutral feeling in the body, let alone a pleasurable feeling. Whereas if we don't do anything to the body, it automatically goes into pain. Hunger, thirst, I'm sitting too long, I want to stand up. I'm standing up too long, I want to sit down. Yeah? My body's tired, I want to go to sleep. I've been sleeping too long, I'm groggy. Yeah. So just by nature, our body is a difficult thing by its nature. Yeah. It's, it's an idea that we don't like to really think about very much. We'd much rather think of our body as a vehicle for pleasure. But if we really look at it, it's not quite like that. 
We have to work very hard to stay alive, very hard to make the body happy. The body's a very demanding taskmaster. Taskmaster. Task <laughs> yeah, the body's saying, give me this, I want this, I don't want that, I'm uncomfortable. I don't like to see this. This noise hurts my ears. This smell makes me feel sick. This taste is disgusting. It's too hot. It's too cold. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Yeah. This is too rough. This is too smooth. Well, they're all kind of put together. On the basis of the body, you know, the eye wants this pleasure from the body. So, very difficult to please this body. Yeah. And I think if we have this idea that the body is, is difficult to please, then our mind maybe relaxes a little bit and accepts, you know, okay, something doesn't feel so well, I can accept it. Yeah. Whereas when we have this idea in the back of our mind that our body always should be pleasurable, always should be comfortable, then even the slightest little thing becomes unendurable. Yeah. Don't you think? <laughs> okay. So when one realizes emptiness directly, how does that Okay, so when we realize emptiness directly, how does that change our relationship with the body? We stop right now with our body. We either consider our body I, this is me, or we consider it mine. And both the I and the mind seem very concrete, very real. If we didn't, if we had, let's say, a sensation in the body, and just regarded it as sensation instead of my sensation or what I'm feeling, we would relate to it a lot differently. Yeah? If we didn't see this, this body as, you know, being something, we're so attached to this body. You know, we need this body to be me. Who am I going to be without this body? So we grasp at the body. If we weren't doing that, then, okay, the body has this sensation, it has that sensation. We're not getting so wigged out about it. Hmm? I think that neuroscientists realize or have studied and the actual sensation is only a minute and a half long, mm -hmm. but it, our experience is much longer because it's the proliferation of thoughts right. that continue. Yeah, that continue that sensation. Right. Yeah. Have the, they found this yes. in science? It came in out science? That gal, the woman, the neuroscientist or physician who had the stroke. Oh yeah. Relatively young. Uh huh. Um, yes, it was. Um, because then she experienced without the thought, the concepts. Oh, right. So she had a direct yeah. experience. She could, you know, she could see it. Right. And they have since confirmed what, mm -hmm. yeah. what her experience was. Right. That the, that the actual sensation doesn't last very long. But what makes it seem so long is the proliferation of thoughts that follows it. Yeah. And is this only like the physical sensations or like? All the emotions, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because if, if you look, like when you're unhappy and you have an unhappy mental feeling, try and just focus only on the unhappy mental feeling. See if you can just experience the unhappy mental feeling. It's actually quite different because automatically our mind says, I don't like this, I don't want this, this feels terrible, this shouldn't happen. There's a whole proliferation of thought. So it's hard to even get to that little moment of unhappy mental feeling because it's totally drowned out by the you know, cacophony in our, in our head that's commenting on it. I was reading in Montaigne uh, Han's books, mm -hmm. uh, The Heart of Buddhist Teachings. He speaks of five stages of calming the mind mm -hmm. versus recognizing it. 
recognizing the state that you're in and then accepting it for what it is. Yeah. Then you embrace it, kind of like a mother embraces its child. And then you look um, look within, you know, and really try to see what the root of it is all. And then from that, you have the fifth stage is an insight. Mm-hmm. So that can like totally reverse the whole habitual pattern that we are to reenacting yeah. and resisting everything. Yeah. And it's just like, ah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's a way to to do this, to, you know, be free of it. But we need real consistency to actually apply the method. Yeah. It's not going to work if we just do it once or twice. Yeah, it needs consistency over and over and over. Yeah. And especially with feeling. It's so difficult with feeling, you know, because we're so reactive to feeling. And that's why in the... In the 12 links, you know, after feeling comes craving. And that's where, you know, the cause for the next rebirth begins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it that the ego is wanting to participate so strongly in the body instead of just observing the body mm. that we experience the pain on that level? Okay, so it's the ego, the wrong, what we're calling like the wrong conception of the self. Yeah, so you're asking is that something that it, it's not content just to observe the body, but it wants to really participate and hold on to the body. Yeah, yeah. And also just even the thought, the way we conceive of ourself is something incorrect. We feel like there's a solid self. And then that solid self has to be protected. And when the body is painful or the mind is painful, then the self rebels. Mm-hmm. I don't like this. It's not fair. The world should be different. And then that those kind of thoughts create more pain. Yeah? Those kind of thoughts themselves are extremely painful. It's what I meant at the beginning by, by we're bumping into ourselves wherever we look. Yeah. Should we go on to the next question? <laughs> Maybe we won't finish the quiz tonight. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> okay, so... Um, Question nine, what is the ignorance that is the root of cyclic existence? Why is it important to eradicate it? And how does wisdom cut this root? So what is the ignorance that's the root of cyclic existence? Independent origination? Hmm? Independent origination? Mm, no. We're ignorant of dependent origination. Well, there is no inherent existence. Not not being able to to look at something and say it doesn't inherently exist. We see it as existing now, and our mind keeps on seeing it as as existing. We've got to get rid of that. Okay. So the ignorance that doesn't see things as they are. Okay. The reality as it is. Okay. So as it is, the ignorance doesn't see. What does the ignorance see? It's its true existence. So what is the ignorance that's the root of cyclic existence? The ignorance grasping true existence. Okay. And what, so why is it important to eradicate it? Why is this? Why is the ignorance grasping true existence the root of samsara? <laughs> yeah. Why isn't the self-centered thought the root of cyclic existence? Why why isn't grasping at ourselves as permanent the root of cyclic existence? Why isn't the root of cyclic existence just this dim, fuzzy confusion of not seeing clearly? I mean, your mind. Yeah, it's the, it's the conception of the self that 
<laughs> but why? Why is the conception of the self such a problem? take care of it, we want the whole world to respond to it exactly the way that we think that it should. Mm-hmm. And so we spend the whole day manipulating the universe to cooperate, which it never does, and it's such a huge cause of misery. Okay. So from from the ignorance comes the attachment to getting what we want, and the aversion and anger and hostility to not getting it, and to getting what we don't like. And then what do those things do? Yeah, they're, they, they are what stimulates the creation of destructive karma. And then what does the destructive karma do? It propels us in cyclic existence. Okay, so this sequence is very important. You know, this is the abbreviation of, of dependent origination. You have ignorance, which gives rise to the afflictions which give rise to karma, which gives rise to suffering. Then once you have the suffering, what happens? The whole thing continues. Yeah. Because, because, you know, by being in this whole predicament, then you're still grasping at the self. So you have more attachment and aversion and so and so, and then you create more more karma to be reborn, and then you have more unsatisfactory conditions. Yeah, and you go round and around, you know, like like a Ferris wheel, like a merry-go-round. I mean, really, a merry-go-round is, is such a good thing because you go up and down between lower realms and upper realms. That water wheel. Yeah, that water wheel. Okay, so, um, so how does ignorance cut? This root of cyclic existence. Yeah. How does wisdom? <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> Are you listening? <laughs> so, how does wisdom cut this root of cyclic existence? What does wisdom do that cuts it? When we see everything as it is, mm-hmm. then we're not limited to an ignorant view of an eye and base everything upon conceptions. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when we see things as they really are, then we're not stuck on a limited view of the eye. Okay, and why is this? Why, when we have wisdom, are we not stuck in that pinhole? Because we can see how everything is connected to each other. Because we can see how everything is connected to each other. Yeah. Huh? And we also see how everything is impermanent. We see how things are impermanent. We see how they're connected. Okay. So the very thing that we, you know, pinned it on, is erroneous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in other words, what ignorance grasps as real. Wisdom sees that same object in completely the opposite way. Okay? You have to remember this. Yeah? So what, what, it, what ignorance grasps as existing, wisdom sees does not exist in the slightest. Yeah? And so because wisdom apprehends the exact opposite of what ignorance does... It, wisdom can over, uh, overpower ignorance. Now, why is that? Why can't ignorance overpower wisdom? Because based on the way things are. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so wisdom. Yeah, because wisdom is based on, has something solid. It's based on how things actually exist, whereas ignorance is based on a hallucination. Ignorance is apprehending a hallucination. So therefore, you know, wisdom can overpower the ignorance. Hmm? Okay, these are important things to remember. So yeah? Sometimes there's these conversations that say that all we have to do is remove the ignorance 
that's not a true statement because ignorance is perceiving, it's like the wisdom is hiding underneath this veil, but it's because ignorance is perceiving things that don't exist at all. It's not like there's, there's some truth in it, but we're just seeing it differently. It's, it's a non-existent reality. Yeah. And that's why when you say it's the wisdom realizing emptiness sees the totally opposite of how the ignorance perceives it. It's not like there's no relationship whatsoever. So I got, always got confused that the ignorance was a strange facsimile of what was really existing. Uh, I didn't see, when you say opposite, I couldn't stretch my mind big enough to say we're talking opposite here. We're not just talking a slight morphed version of with, you know, reality. We're right. talking about hallucination. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. Okay, because sometimes we say ignorance, then we think, well, actually, even we say it, it, it's like, oh yeah, ignorance is just, it's like this film that's on top of things, you know. So you just take away the ignorance. And there's the wisdom. And, and there's your telephone and your paper and yourself <laughs> and everything. It's just as, as it is, just as you've always thought it is. It is it's real, solid, and concrete. But you just take the little bit of dust on top of it, which is ignorance off. No. No. You know, the very things that we feel so sure exist don't. So would that be the wisdom of emptiness? Yes. Yeah, that's the wisdom realizing emptiness. Okay. And what we mean by emptiness is not nothingness. Yeah, it's the lack of all this fantasy that we've put on top of things. Yeah. And then why do we have the term the veil of ignorance? Because I've always been, I've always been taught like there's this veil of ignorance that's uh-huh. totally distorting my whole view. Yeah, it is a veil of ignorance that's distorting. That ignorance is a complete opposite. Complete opposite of the way things exist. It's, ap- it's apprehending the complete opposite of how things exist. Ignorance does. Okay. Yes, it's not like the velvet curtain. It's like a trick mirror. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's it's so easy, and we do get caught up in this, you know, and kind of like, oh yeah, all you do is negate inherent existence, and then. You know your your afflictions are gone, and so we, you know you realize it was merely emptiness. You negate inherent existence, and then this big strong I that feels so real is gone. But inside, what are we thinking? Yes, there's this big strong I that lives happily ever after. Yeah, there's this big I that has now realized emptiness. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, there's this truly existent I that has realized emptiness. There's this truly existent I who is now special because I am now a Buddha. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, um, uh, Chantarope Joyce wrote this uh, one thing about it, seeing, seeing the mother. And he talks about how we. Um, Sometimes in the way we approach emptiness, it's like we build a straw man and then shoot him down, but we're, we're not really using the analysis to hit it, how we actually feel things exist, how we actually grasp things as existing. Yeah, It's like we, we paint, oh yeah, here's inherent existence out there, you know, something completely different than how I conceive of myself. <laughs> it's very tricky. Very tricky. Okay, we have a few minutes left for questions. <laughs> yeah. When you asked us to think about the question last week, if there's no snake there, how does it function as a snake? Mm-hmm. Would the response to that be to that? Just what we talked about at the beginning of, of this evening with conventional and ultimate truth being 
um, complementary, mm-hmm. so that there, you, would you say that there is a snake there, just not ultimately when you look for it in its parts? Mm-hmm. Okay, so what do, what do people think about what he said? You know, I'd asked you to think about mm-hmm. if there's no snake there, how can it function as a snake? I mean, if there's no clock here, how can this tell time? There's got to be a clock here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's got to be a snake there. Otherwise, how can it bite you? Yeah. Right? So, so he's, he's wondering if, you know, the way to resolve that is what we were talking about at the beginning. Yeah, about ultimate and conventional and them being complementary. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when we say there's no snake there, what what viewpoint are we talking from? The ultimate channel B. And when we say it functions, channel A. Okay. Conventional. Yeah. Yeah. If something's functioning, it means that it can be influenced by causes and conditions. If it is influenced and produced by causes and conditions, it exists dependent on something else. If it's dependent, it can't be independent. And independent is synonymous with inherent. So it sounds very easy to say, doesn't it? But we still look, and these things all around us are very real. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's very interesting, you know, to try and make it a practice when you have happiness or when you have happiness, to just say this this is produced by causes. You know, train the mind to, to see instead of, oh, here's this unhappiness, I've got to fight it. This is produced by causes. It's produced by causes. It's produced by causes, therefore it's impermanent. It's not going to last. Even I want it to last, it's not going to. Yeah? That's what makes it really interesting. You feel, oh, it's permanent, it's always going to be there. I can't get rid of this horrible feeling. But even if we wanted it always to be there, it's not. And in fact, if we look really closely, each moment by moment, each moment of that pain or each moment of that pleasure is also going out of existence moment by moment. So each moment is not going to be there until the next moment. So it's going out of existence before our very eyes while we're thinking that it's permanent. Doesn't it? I am produced by causes. The only reason I exist is because the causes for me exist. Yeah, and they're shifting. And our mind goes, what? I only exist because the causes for me exist? Forget it. I am here. I don't depend on causes, on these flaky causes that are, causes that arise and cease. I'm here. Really. Not going out of existence anytime soon. Like forever. <laughs> And yet, actually, moment by moment, we're going out of existence, aren't we? Yeah, I'm going out of existence. <laughs> okay, so those are some good things to sit with for the week. Okay? Really sit with that and try and see that. The, the interesting thing I've been thinking about taking into the weekend is that the dying process itself is the cause and conditions starting to really... I mean, they're disintegrating, but the cause and conditions for a life to be alive, for a body to be alive and for a mind to be in a body, those causes are changing in a very specific way. Yeah. You know, they're they're subtle still, but there's also something going on where the body no longer is being supported by the causes and conditions that kept it alive. 
So just taking this whole teaching and putting it into the weekend with this whole yeah. and death process. Okay, so the, this weekend we're going to be having a course on, on uh, preparing for death and dying and bringing this thing about impermanence and non-self, ex- uh, non-true existence into it and see that actually moment by moment we're changing and disintegrating. So it's not like we live and then there's a fence and at you know, this moment we're living and you cross the fence and now you're dying. This is the way we feel, isn't it? I'm living and then dying, you know, it comes later sometime. Yeah. And so even we're terminally ill and we're disintegrating. I'm still living. I'm not dying. Huh? Yeah. We're living and dying at the same time. And the cause of death is birth. Yes. Mm-hmm. I have a problem with time. Mm-hmm. I don't understand how time truly exists, or does it truly? It exist? does. It nothing. Exist. Nothing truly exists. So time exists, but it doesn't truly exist. Okay. Why doesn't it truly exist? When we talk about a minute, isn't a minute based on our conceptualization? Yeah. So all of our measurements of time are complete conceptualizations on our part, dividing things up. Till a moment before this moment that the mind thought in the continuing of moments. Yeah. There's and a that's that's not time then. That's how do we Well the, you can only and, measure time independence on something that is changing moment by moment. You can't measure time in a vacuum because you only measure it in terms of the rate of change something is undergoing. Okay, so the whole notion of time is dependent, isn't it? It's not like time is in its own universe and connecting with us. And a minute happens and an hour happens without anything else existing. No, a minute and an hour can't happen unless there's some conventional phenomena that is in the process of change because the whole idea of time is measuring change. So time is dependent. It's not some truly existent thing out there. And you can't travel backwards in it. Okay, let's dedicate. So try and keep, you know, mull this over in your meditation. Okay? May the spiritual teachers who lead me on the sacred path and all spiritual friends who practice it have long life. May I pacify completely all our inner hindrances. Grant such inspiration, I pray. May the lives of the venerable spiritual master be stable. And their divine actions spread in the ten directions. May the light of Losong's teachings dispel in the darkness of the beams in the three worlds always increase. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. 
May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May the born have no decline, but increase forevermore. In the snowy mountain pure land, you're the source of good and happiness. Powerful tens and gaps of generosity, may you stay until samsara ends. May the deeds of explaining and practicing the Dharma, done by groups supporting the teachings and their upholders, who spread the view of dependent arising and nonviolent actions in the ten directions, and especially at Shravasti Abbey in the West Flourish.